everyone and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, MLSsoccer.com's very own Tom Bogert. Tom, first, how are you doing? And second, maybe more importantly, how is your mustache doing? <laughs> What's going on, Joe? Thanks for having me, man. Mustache is there, um, and depending on who you ask, it's either glorious or disgusting. So, yeah, I'll let you be the desire. Tom is here to be polarizing, apparently, just like his mustache. I very much appreciate you being willing to join me today. Listeners, everything is A-OK with Jordan. She's just getting a well-deserved week off to enjoy that crisp fall air that she keeps bragging about. So with her out this week, we've got Tom to bring his eye for the game. Well, actually, I hope you brought both eyes, not just one, but hopefully both eyes for the game. Anyway, Tom's here to bring insight into the league and bring insight into what he's seen this weekend. Tom, are you ready to do this thing? I am, and can confirm I do watch games with both eyes. I don't know if that's going to make it good, but it's going to be better than one eye. Perfect. That's all we can ask, really. I I haven't found much (laughs) success closing one eye and getting any more insight from the game than watching with both, so we'll go with that. Starting off at the top of today's show, I think this is probably the biggest narrative from the week, and you can disagree with me on this, Tom, if you'd like, but For me, the biggest narrative and the biggest talking point from the week is Gonzalo Higuain's debut for Inter-Miami in their 3-0 loss to the Philadelphia Union on Sunday. Higuain started up top in a 4-2-3-1 with Rodolfo Pizarro underneath him for most of this game. We'll get to what Higuain did well in this game because there were things that I thought he did very well in areas that I think he boosts Inter-Miami's attack in. But first... Tom, we texted about this. We've got to start with his missed penalty kick in the second half. There was a scuffle, there was some trash talking, and I was entertained. Entertained is definitely the right word for that. I mean, like, I don't know. I didn't notice too much between him and Jacob Lesnus during the game, or maybe I just wasn't, like, watching close enough because there was a couple games on. But, like, he's borderline trying to dunk on him and, like, <laughs> with the celebration after a missed penalty. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, what just – is he trying to start a fight? And the best part about that is – Somebody else must have been talking crap to him because he didn't even notice Glesnitz doing a fist pump right next to his face, all in his personal space. He had to turn to to scream at Jose Martinez. I was like, there's so many things going on there. And uh, in Miami, I'm, I'm not going to be like body language doctor here, but Miami were a little slow to get in there. Maybe they were a little surprised at what the heck was going on. But like at that first picture, like the the picture that we used to lead the the recap of the game it's you see Iguain and five angry Philly players come on Miami where is your natural reaction to oh that's my guy I gotta at least step in there like we know that there's not going to be an actual fight because you're gonna get suspended for 10 games and nobody's dumb enough realistically to have like a full field brawl here but like you gotta get in there and support your guy I don't know what took what took so long I've never seen a player celebrate a missed penalty <laughs> Like Jacob Glesnus did in that in moment. I've never seen minute, that, Tom. In the 70th minute or whatever, 80th minute of a 2 nothing game in, in September. <laughs> it's not as if it was 1-0. It's not as if it was a draw right in that moment. It's not as if this was a playoff game. This was a 2 nothing lead at home for the Philadelphia Union. And Jacob Glesnus goes off, as do a lot of other Philadelphia Union players. I had fun. It's not the type of thing I thought we were going to see and talk about relating to Gonzalo Higuain. But it happened, man, and I'm glad it did. I'm so curious to the backstory. I wish that we could get just like an honest five minutes with everyone of Iguain, Glesnes, Martinez, and maybe even Andre Blake or Mark McKenzie. And like, what led to this? What Like what was said or what was done? What was a trash talk? When did it start? Because it like I sure it was physical enough, but like 
I didn't see anything like that coming. And, you know, I usually enjoy those moments. I'm, I'm, I try to have a keen eye on it. And even that surprised me. I I don't know. It's borderline inexplicable. But uh, as you said, I'm just glad it happened. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure we just found your next feature. So you're welcome. <laughs> um, but OK, for you, looking specifically at the nitty gritty here about Iguain's game and his performance on the field in open play. For you, Tom, what did Iguain do well? What did you see from him that maybe was an encouraging sign for Miami, even in this 3 nothing loss? So first of all, and I think that we just need to, this this has to be said, and I'm not I'm not making excuses for Iguain, particularly for the penalty, because even if somebody like him just got just got walked off a plane, he should be able to, or like he, he shouldn't be excused for missing a penalty. But it, it has to be said that this was his first game since what, August 1st? And before that, like he wasn't playing every single game of the Juventus. And then, he the transfer took a little while and then he had to quarantine and then I don't even know how many full training sessions he's gotten. So first things first, like that, that's got to be, you know, talked about in this discussion about Higuain, um and then playing against Philly, it seemed that's so high energy in pouring rain. Conditions weren't exactly perfect for Higuain's debut. Um, just the fact that he was able to last 90 minutes, I was really intrigued by and really surprised by and maybe uh, judging by, you know, the lack of legs and the penalty. And from that moment on, he looked like he didn't even have a light jog and left in him, but he was still on the field. And so I give him credit for that. But, you know, other than that, have to talk about the missed penalty. He had a couple good moments when, when the ball came to him. And, and I think that that confirmed a lot of our thoughts. He's not obviously going to be useless in, in the possession, in the buildup, but like he's here to score goals. And, and it's like what we, what people, and I'm sure everybody, including yourself would have talked about with, Chicharito, it, it, this is about simple as guys going to score goals. And, you know, we're not going to look at them for the way that Alan Polito helps in the buildup. And Alan Polito kind of helps with uh, distribution and, and creating chances and whatnot. Like Iguain in his team is going to be a goal scorer. And this puts so much more pressure on Rodolfo Pizarro and Lewis Morgan and Matias Pellegrini to be creating more chances than they have. Because in that game, like Ben Sweat was like the guy I thought was most likely to create an assist. And that's good for sweat, but not good for um, Miami's starting 11. Like that's not where the creative burden should fall. So I was at least intrigued and impressed that Iguain was able to last the full 90 minutes, but you know, with a penalty and with a couple other of his chances, you know, he, he should have done a bit better, but again, it's a debut and we'll see how this looks in, in a month from now, or maybe not that a couple games around because a month is going to be like 10 games, but we'll see how it looks in a couple weeks when he's got, you know, his, his full legs under him. I appreciate you starting with that caveat because it's important with all these things, especially in a really strange Major League Soccer season with all the stopping and starting and heavy games in short amounts of time. It's important to add that caveat that, yes, for a player like Iguain, this is his first game in a lineup. We don't want to overanalyze any one thing. We really can't overanalyze any one thing in this entire year. But as I say that, I'm about to do that. Tom, you're right. Iguain's job is to score goals. And I think even though he didn't do that in this game, he couldn't do it from the spot and he couldn't do it in open play. I think we saw how he's going to score goals in moments later on this season. And that's by finding space and moving into that space in the box. As with pretty much all top, top tier number nines, and Iguain maybe is not that point on the world scale at this point mm-hmm. in his career, but he has been in the past. For any top tier, even Major League Soccer number nine, Your job and what's going to differentiate you from every other number nine playing at a level below you is how you move in the box. Iguain in this game had two moments, two moments in the attacking third where I thought he did really, really well finding and exploiting space. The first one that sticks out in my head more than any other is that attempted bicycle kick 
in the 20th minute, right? I think you probably know the sequence I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Iguain finds space in the box between Philadelphia's two center backs. He's just sitting in that little pocket right in front and right between them. As a center forward, if you can get the ball in that space, ideally it'll be on the ground, but it came in in the air in this moment. If you can get on the ball in that space, mm-hmm. that's exactly where you want to be. So that's moment number one. He doesn't convert the bicycle kick, but that's the spot. That's the spot you want to be in. Moment number two, actually, I think it was slightly outside the box. Miami are moving the ball down their right side. And someone, I don't remember who it was, tries to play a cutback to Iguain right at the top of the box. Iguain's open. The ball doesn't quite get there. But the fact that he was open is what caught my eye there. Iguain made the run from deeper in midfield. He made the run, got to the spot, and was ready for the ball to come to him. He was ready to either take a shot from the top of the box or to cut the ball back and then move it again onto his right foot and take a shot. Mm -hmm. Those things, those little tiny moments... That's what Miami, that's what Diego Alonso needs from Gonzalo Higuain, and the building blocks are there. Yeah, and I like that the, that you interpreted that bike as the, the underlying factors rather than like looking at the jazz hands of, ooh, he tried a, an acrobatic attempt, like, like noticing where he's in that space, and, and that's a great point. Like I, I was trying to spend some time watching him off the ball and what he was doing, and that's particularly why I noticed that he looked gassed in the last 15 20 yeah. minutes because he was barely moving even in the box where his he's best at being lethal and like you don't need to cover a lot of ground you just make smart short bursts but like the movement is there and, and that's good and i have to give it credit to matt doyle for this opinion because he's been like banging the pot as like the the number one or like he, he continues going back to it that like he thought that this dp slot should have went to a creator rather than a goal scorer and that's kind of what that's the frame of reference that i'm going to keep watching and going with like again he's going to I like the underlying of him getting into his spaces is great. But as you said, on like that one on the cutback, the ball didn't quite get there. And and we're not going to overreact because of one pass that didn't come to him. But like he keeps getting into the right spots or kept getting to the right spots rather because it was one game. And, and you know, that's going to happen. And, you know, he's he's going to put himself in a position to score goals. It's about whether he's going to get enough chances to make a meaningful difference for this team. I still think that th- that it should um, I'm, I don't necessarily disagree with Doyle that they should absolutely 100% should have gotten a chance creator rather than Gonzalo Higuain with this because if Gonzalo Higuain is available, you, you just sign him, you know? So, you know, best laid plans and all. I'm totally good with this. And you have Pizarro and, and wingers like Morgan. And again, we need to see more from Pellegrini. Um, but Higuain should get the chances. It's just whether he's going to get, say, enough chances to be like, oh, holy crap, this was an incredible signing. We've talked about Jacob Glesnes. We've talked now about Gonzalo Higuain. The last player in that trio, that matchup trio, is young Philadelphia Union center back Mark McKenzie, who I thought was largely excellent against Higuain on Sunday. His movement, he was patient when, when defending Higuain in transition. He was strong defending him in the air. He wasn't perfect as far as attentiveness goes, which I think is... Somewhat understandable. I mean, watching and looking around defensively is a problem that we see at the highest levels mm-hmm. of soccer. I just wrote my newsletter on Benched about it this week with Chelsea not really paying attention to runners at the back post. So I don't want to be too harsh to McKenzie here. But overall, Tom, I thought Mark McKenzie was really solid in this game. I know he's highly regarded around the league and highly regarded other places. What's your outlook on him as far as his playing ability goes right now and about his future? Yeah, I mean, he's he's somebody who plays bigger than he is he's he doesn't jump off the page as like a physical like oh my god that that's a that's a meat truck at center back no i don't want to get into a 50 50 with him here or like he's fast enough but it's not like you look at him and and you think like oh like nobody can run past this guy but he has a bigger presence than those things would you know suggest that he might and i don't know how to quantify that or to kind of explain it any better but like 
you feel kind of good, I guess, when he's when he's around in defense. And and the way that he breaks lines, um, and his left foot left footed passing ability is very good. And and a lot of people have have pointed that out. And that's going to be very advantageous for him moving forward when he eventually does make a move to Europe. And it's going to happen because this this quality that he's shown already and the interest that's been in him in Celtic and and some other places like that's the outlook for him. It, it's it's getting to Europe and. Maybe if it's Celtic, you know, Champions League, Europa League level club. And I would love to see how he does once he gets there. And, and in a team that, you know, I don't, I don't know how much you can really take away if he goes to a team like Celtic, you know, based on their league play and what he looks like in their league. But like, I would love to see where he goes and how he grows and how he looks on a day to day basis and whether he's like well and truly ready for this as, you know, he may look like now um, or if he's going to need a couple more years of developing before he hits the ceiling. But like, a lot of things are looking up for him and, and this is, this is looking good. And, and the fact that he's still playing, I, I don't know if he started every single one of their games, but it's just about that. And Philly have three very good options at center back. So the fact that you think this rotation might be something closer to, okay, Gles- between Glesnes, McKenzie and Elliot, that maybe Elliot starts 10 of the 12 or 13 games and McKenzie has nine and, and Glesnes has whatever's left of that, but something closer to regular starter than squad player. But it's been McKenzie. That's the, first defender on the team sheet or first center back on the team sheet rather. So everything's trending up for him. And, and as you said, it, I, I was, I was been very, continue to be very impressed and not surprised about how he's playing. Let's go ahead and loop in the other two young guys. I mean, this is a little bit harsh to Matt Real, I guess at left back, but the other two <laughs> higher profile, young attacking players for the Philadelphia union in Brendan Aronson and Anthony Fontana, they both get goals in this three, nothing win for Jim Curtin's team. Mackenzie anchored the back line. Fontana started as the 10 at the top of that midfield diamond for the Union's 4-4-2 diamond, pushing Brendan Aronson over to the right side of that diamond shape. I like Aronson there. I want to make that clear. I like him as an 8. I like him as a 10. I like him as a winger. I think my preferred order for him in where I think his ceiling is highest is winger, then 8, then 10. Really? But the fact that he can do all of those things effectively was cemented for me in this game with him mm-hmm. as that number 8 because we don't see him there very often. Usually it's Bedoya. But Tom, I mean, the Union are bringing through young players. Paxton Aronson is on the way. That's also just sounds like a made up, a made up name generator. The Paxton US, U.S. national team Twitter, 100 percent. That can't be a real player, right? Like, Yeah, that's that's definitely fake. That's philosophical AI right there. Just turning out name after name. But Paxton Aronson is coming through. There are guys on this Union team right now and in the pipeline that are ready to impact Major League Soccer, ready to move from MLS, as you reported about Brendan Aronson mm-hmm. with that verbal agreement with RB Salzburg. I mean, the union are doing things and they're not just doing things with youth development, but they're actually doing it and staying competitive on the field at the same time. That to me is incredibly impressive that they've managed to merge those two things together. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts here, but I'm, I'll, I'm going to start with a quick aside on Matt Real and you're right. And the only reason why Matt Real isn't playing more minutes is because Kai Wagner is one of the best left backs in the league. So it's, you know, what is he supposed to do kind of thing? So it, it's again, that that's another talent that we should absolutely have our eyes on. And like with Fontana, just because he's being blocked by, you know, uh, Bedoya, Montero and Aronson, that doesn't mean that he's not deserving of minutes kind of thing. So it's it should, another kind of pat on the back for Philly. But in general, as you're saying, like how how great it is that they're able to do this and stay competitive. It's really impressive. It's not easy, but because of Philly's financials or investment, salary cap, all that, they have to do it like this. This is why they invested in the academy. This is why they hired Ernst Tanner. At Hoffenheim, he was the one who hired Nagelsmann and brought him to the organization. And he's the one who helped get Nagelsmann to um, 
the uh, the youngest you know boy wonder when he was off and on and he's still obviously very young at Leipzig but these are the kind of things that like this is nothing new for Tanner like and and with Jim Curtin's development like it's the Philly doing the right thing with the investment in their academy there's tangible results already and there's about to be a lot of money in the bank because of the Aronson transfer and when you have McKenzie as a stalwart in the lineup, Aronson as a stalwart in the starting 11. And these aren't just like, Hey, we're going to give young kids some minutes and watch them grow it. It's like, like with Dallas, how they have players genuinely above average at their position. Like when, before Reggie Cannon left, he was genuinely an above average right back. And this is kind of how you, you stay competitive. If your budget charges aren't high, this is how you stay competitive. If you're not going to spend $15 million on, on a player from South America, like they need to win in the margins. And what Tanner is doing and, and what Curtin has done with helping develop these kids is the the way that they're going to go forward and the way that they stay towards the top of the ETH. And as you say, when you when we talk about multiple guys and, and this is really their first wave of academy talent, like that started with including Austin Trusty, who was traded to Colorado and Derek Jones, who's traded to Nashville. Like these guys are what, 20, 21? Like, what is this going to look like? for the guys who maybe aren't Aronson, like the blue chip prospects or Paxson Aronson, who I heard is might even be a better prospect. Like, but he, he's just because he has his brother's last name, like he's actually in that conversation because of his talent and ability. But even if you don't get the Brendan Aronson, Mark McKenzie level prospect, you, you, you've churned out Austin Trusty and Derek Jones. There's are going to be two good MLSers and Trusty might have a higher ceiling if he figures out, you know, how to get through this hurdle. But this is how Philly are going to stay competitive and going to keep winning in the margins. And it's hugely important. But one more thing to wrap this up. I'm, I'm curious about your, that, that you think Brandon Aronson's highest value or, or however you put it would be at the wing, because I think that he's good as a winger, but I want that kind of player, that kind of presence, that two way indefatigable motor in the middle of the field. So I, I can, I can see what you're saying with eight, but now that he's even helping or putting more and more goal contributions at the 10. I'd obviously rather see him start there. And I think that him as an eight would be a solid backup plan. But I, I was curious to have you delve a little further into why you think that winger would be where his highest ceiling is. The defensive ability that Brendan Aronson has is the best counter argument to what I'm about to say. And so I appreciate you bringing that to the table. For me, let's start with his offensive game. That is where my eyes are immediately drawn with Brendan Aronson. He's so filthy good on the ball. He gets the ball wide or he gets the ball even in that right half space. He can drop his shoulder and beat someone 1v1. That for me is a is a skill, at least in the United States men's national team player pool, that is just so underdone. A lot of players in the in the player pool. I mean, think about a Paul Areola, who's a guy who started out wide for the U.S. a lot over the last few years. He's not someone who you can count on to win 1v1 battles on the wing mm-hmm. with the ball. Brendan Aronson, that skill for me is eye catching about him. Then, yeah, sure, it doesn't allow him to get in the middle of the field and break up plays. But I'm not thinking if he's on an RB Salzburg or if he's able to move to an even higher level, I'm not thinking that that skill is going to be as necessary in the middle of the field as it might be for the Philadelphia Union right now with how Jim Curtin wants to play. So could I be wrong? Absolutely. Has it happened before? Once or twice. Getting (laughs) Brendan Aronson wide, though, allows him to beat players 1v1, allows him to get on the ball in space. And because modern soccer is developing into really fluid soccer when teams have the ball, having a guy like Aronson who can start wide and come central or can start central and move wide that could be a real asset to a possession team mm-hmm. at a higher level in Europe. So that's why I say Aronson's ceiling for me is highest as a winger. But yeah, Tom, I mean, that that defensive argument is very fair. And if a team needs some solidity in the middle of the field, having a high motor 
like Brendan Aronson in that central area, that's going to be key. Interesting. Those are good points. And that though, that's something that I'll definitely continue to watch forward. But I, I still really do like him in the middle where he's in the action. But like you said, we'll see what it looks like with, with Salzburg and, and hopefully slash whenever that next transfer comes after that. On to two teams also at the top of the Eastern Conference. This is Toronto FC's 3-1 win over the Columbus crew. Tom, if you'll permit me, this game was on Sunday. I want to zoom in on Toronto from this game and look at the thing that I think makes them so good on their good days. For me, that's their flexible possession structure. I just mentioned it with the Aronson conversation. But for Greg Vanny and for how he has this team playing, it's not about positions. It's not about where his players are are starting on the field in possession. It's about what their responsibilities are mm-hmm. and what spaces they need to occupy. Looking just at Ayo Akinola in this game, the formation graphics online that I saw had Toronto FC's starting formation as a 4-5-1 with Akinola on the right wing. But that's not what it was at all, really. It was Akinola drifting inside. That was his job. His responsibility mm-hmm. was to move inside, free up Josie Altador to drop centrally, and give Richie Larea the entire right-wide area to work with. In the second half, Vanny abandoned all pretenses of Akinola playing wide and just moved him inside as part <laughs> of a 4-4-2. But the idea is there, right? I mean, Greg mm-hmm. Vanny knows how to get his players in spaces where they can impact the game. And I think that's exactly what makes Toronto FC so dangerous when they have the ball. Yeah, and, and that is super interesting. And and the fact that, like you said, they just cleared out the right side. And I was like, go ahead, Richie, this is all you. And we're going to have, like, Justin Morrow drop back to, you know, when, when you get to have full license to play like a winger. And we'll sacrifice Justin Morrow, who's very good at getting forward himself. We're going to sacrifice him as more of a left-sided center back in a back three as Richie goes forward. But, like, backing up all of what you said, like, looking at the heat maps, Richie Larea is, and this probably isn't great for an audio medium, but I'm going to try my best to describe this. He's on the same plane as Pablo Piatti and Alejandro um, Pozuelo and slightly behind Josie and Akinola. And even, as like you said, Vanny, given the false pretenses of of Ayo being a winger or even a false winger, like he's straight up through the center of the field, like on the heat map, which is just another way to underpin that they game planned to say go ahead Richie you just take the right side and go ahead win this this game and it just doesn't have anything to do with last night but how is a player that this talented was borderline like about to be was out of the league he, he barely played for Orlando for three seasons and then he was a free agent up until last season's uh preseason like how is this kind of talent and he since when he jumped in then too it was pretty immediate where it was like oh crap like this is a player and particularly when they were playing him at at fullback rather than winger, which is maybe, I don't even remember what Orlando was doing with him because they never played him. But like how when Orlando were such a dumpster fire for a few years and Richie, they had this talent that, that like never shown through. And it's just, it, it's so intriguing to me. And it just always like reminds me like how much context matters and like, okay, like I think that guy's a good player, but he, he's not playing very well for this team. Like, is it him? Am I wrong about him? Or is it his context? And like with Richie, like this dude is, is one of the best fullbacks in the league right now. And he was somebody who, almost just dropped out of the league after three years. Tom, I don't know if you feel like this, but I feel like every time I watch Richie Larea, he does something fun. And almost every time I watch him, he does something really, really good. You know, all three of the goals in this game for Toronto FC in their 3-1 win, all three of those goals involve Richie Larea on the right side. The first goal, he plays the ball over to the middle in the buildup, leading to Josie Altador getting the ball outside the top of the box. Second goal, he gets that assist. After driving at a defender, he finds Pozuelo, again, near the top of the box. This is a problem for the Columbus crew that we're not really going to delve into right now. But then on the third goal, he takes on the entire left side of the crew's defense, dribbles at them all, at three guys. 
the left back, the left center back, and the left the left-sided midfielder for the Columbus crew. He dribbles at all of them and scores. Richie Larea in this game could not be stopped. Credit to Greg Vanny for getting him in space and credit, as you're saying, to Richie Larea for being the player that he is and taking advantage of those opportunities on the right side for Toronto. What a player and what a performance from him in this game. Yeah, it's fantastic. And and like, and again, as you said, credit to Vanny for recognizing this, like who game plans like this for your right back? Like, yeah. like and, and Columbus, again, are one of consensus, what the, at worst, the third best team in the league. Like I, they're definitely in that top tier, but like most people say that they're the best team in the league. So it's not like they were just doing this to any random team. Like this is one of the premier MLS cup challengers for this season. And it's not like left back is nominally an issue for them. Like they have Milton Valenzuela uh, there and all, but like it's, it's, and, but I, like, I know he didn't play last night. Jimenez did, but still, like it's it's not like this team is is like oh that's an obvious error. Like Vanny identifying that, and again, game planning for a right back is so interesting. And it's again credit to him for figuring that out. Absolutely. Flipping over to the top of the Western Conference on this show on MLS Assist, I think we've done a really bad job this year of giving credit to the Seattle Sounders, and that's not something that I really ever thought I would have to say or something that I, I didn't think the rest of the MLS media landscape would cover <laughs> for us. But it's time for me to own up. It's hard sometimes with those late Sunday games recording a show on Monday. But all of that aside, excuses out the window, it's time. Seattle continues to be very, very good. They get that 3-1 win over the Galaxy this week on Sunday. Man, Tom, the Sounders are so darn good every single year. I don't talk about it enough. Mm-hmm. You pretty much know exactly what you're getting from Brian Schmetzer's team every single game before they take the field. They're going to be out there in a 4-2-3-1. They're going to be dangerous in transition. They're occasionally going to be dangerous in possession. They're going to be a pain to get through that front line and the midfield line defensively. They have great underlying numbers. I mean, this team is legit. Jordan Morris is legit. The Seattle Sounders under Brian Schmetzer are incredible. I think that you hit it on the head as why they might not. And again, this is Seattle, so it's so funny to even be saying it like this because they usually get like their fans are the most vocal and, and all that. But like the reason why they might not get might not be getting a ton of credit right now is there's we, there isn't much of an unknown about this team. Like you said, you know how they're going to line up and they're just going to be excellent. Like now once they get the center backs figured out or it's it's obviously not as bad as it was um, as problematic as it was rather over the summer. But like, you know how they're going to line up, you know how they're going to play and you know that they're just going to be like really, really good or just good or like, oh, they just had an off day. So I think that that's got to be why that they're not getting it because San Jose continues to be talked about every single week just because people are looking at it like surprised about the their man marking system. And some weeks they can just get kicked in the teeth, seven nothing or then they can go ahead and beat LAFC. Like the intrigue is there because of the unknown. Seattle, it's boring. I'm not saying, but it's almost like it's boring because it's repeated excellence and you know how it's happening. So it's like, OK, I know that I'm my brain needs to go figure out something about somebody else. Yeah. I mean, we know what the Sounders do. We know their best two players in this game. Raul Rui Diaz was not playing. It was Will Bruin up top, mm-hmm. which means, that, again, their best two players in this game is Nico Ladero and Jordan Morris. And their combination for me in transition is what makes the Sounders so, so good getting out on the break. I mean, the first goal in this game, Seattle's first goal to go up one to nothing against the Galaxy. Nico Ladero doesn't even have the ball, but he moves back away from the back line on the far side of the field on Jordan Morris's side of the field. Mm-hmm. That movement from Ladero creates space for Jordan Morris to burst in behind. Morse steps in behind the back line. He starts sprinting down that left wing, gets the ball, and then he squares it to Christian Roldan for the finish. That's goal number one for the Sanders. Goal number two. This one is the classic Nico Ladero, Jordan Morris special. <laughs> Ladero's on the ball deeper in Seattle's half, and he switches the point of attack out to Morris on the left side. 
Morris gets behind Rolf Felcher and finishes. I mean, Jordan Morris and Ladero's combination is filthy. It's so good. It's hard to stop. And when those two players are on and connected like they were in this game for the Sounders, the Galaxy, I mean, unless they have a perfectly set offside trap every single time, <laughs> which they did not, they very much did not have that in this game with their back four. Unless they have that, you're done. Jordan Morris's ability to get in behind the back line is unmatched in Major League Soccer, and he showed that on Sunday. Yeah, and, and that's another guy that he probably, like lately he started to, but like it, there was a narrative where he wasn't getting enough credit. And again, it's probably because, you know, all right, this dude is has transitioned from forward to winger really well, like playing essentially like an inside forward for them that like, it's just like, okay, we know this dude's really fast. We know he's lethal, can be lethal one-on-ones. We know that he's going to create space just because of that pace and everything. And then it's like, all right, like that's it. And like, we kind of gloss over it because it's like, he is what he is, but he's an all-star, like best XI this season, like elite level player. So like, it's, it's just surprising or as you say like intriguing that we don't kind of give the credit that maybe they deserve and again this is a team it's so ironic that this is the team that most people joke about that like Sounders fans always try to take all the credit and they always get all the credit and they always get all the national tv games and they always get this and that so like it's just funny that the framing of this conversation is correct but it's Seattle it's like are we gonna do this with Atlanta if they're good next year too be like oh you know what we're not giving Atlanta enough credit and be like what 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 happened usually like 2017 2018 we're giving them too much credit does Brad Smith change anything for the Seattle Sounders, Tom? He came in in this game as a left-sided midfielder partway through the second half. Now the Sounders are three deep at left back. I mean, does his addition or, or re-addition almost back into the squad, does that give Brian Schmetzer any more flexibility in your eyes? How does that shift anything on the field for the Sounders? Yeah, because as you said, he, he should come in at left mid when you're winning games if you're looking for an additional kind of, like because he's a left back, not not a left forward who can play it like, and at the left side of midfield or whatever left side of the four three three, So that's a very good way that they'll be able to use them. But, but like you said, I, the more flexibility is with the front office, because what if like, I mean, it's not going to happen obviously now because Ramon Torres is, is, is coming back. But if, if the Red Bulls called and said, Hey, we'll give you Tim Parker for new who they'd be like, all right, yeah, probably we'll do it. Like Eve Joven Jones, you know, because they, they have three left backs and nobody in this league has three left backs. Nobody in Mexico has three left backs like this, that like new who and, and Joven Jones would be, starters on most other teams and brad smith i've said since the day he arrived he's one of the best left backs in the league and maybe that's my liverpool bias because he was created through liverpool but i do genuinely believe he's it's a very very good player so they have like a glut of options there and it gives it does give schmetzer the flexibility but i i think that the flexibility is more for the front office i want to touch on one galaxy player here more than i want to touch on their tactics from this game that's julian arajo Tom, I'm just wondering, from what you've heard or from what you know, or if you're able to share anything, does Julian Araujo have hopes of moving abroad? Yeah, um, definitely. Nothing that I can that I know of or can report now, but I do know it was reported that when he was either joining the Galaxy Academy or when he was ending up ready to sign his first team deal, I know that there was European clubs that were trying to get him into their academy. And teams do that all the time that doesn't necessarily like I believe one of the teams reported was Liverpool and, and that obviously doesn't mean that they think that he was going to be their starting right back or anything but big clubs sniffing around trying to get kids in the academy is a thing that happens all the time and, and he was somebody who had that interest and again I'm not sure if I'm remembering Liverpool correctly or not but it was a club like that anyway Araujo he has not only like I eventually I, if, if he continues on this trajectory I'd expect him to go to Europe but again there's nothing I can report right now but there is he also has interest from two national teams. Um, Tata Martino has was on the record last week saying that uh, Mexico have contacted him. 
And Oral has been on extra time talking about this himself. And it's pretty much just like, look, like I've, I'm in the U.S. system now. Um, and, and he was on the U-20 World Cup team last year, even though that was like a year before. Like He'll be on the next one, too, um, if I have my dates lined up correctly, just because of his age. And like he's been with the U.S. I don't think that he's made an appearance with the Mexican youth national team, but Mexico are keeping their eyes on him and, and they are interested in him and Araujo has pretty much said like yeah it's which kind of whichever federation gives me the better options or is best for my career and, and that's where I'll go so that'll be something to watch and do national panic is uh, always fun love it that's a t-shirt ready to be made right there Tom moving <laughs> to another one of the bajillion games that we had on Sunday the Chicago Fires two nothing win over Atlanta United I said it in a group chat that we're in with a few other major <laughs> league soccer folks earlier this year but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure, I don't remember the exact wording. I said something along the lines of the Chicago Fire are going to be good or they're going to be fun. Something positive I said about the Chicago Fire. And I think that prediction is coming good. I can ratify, yeah, I can ratify that for you because you did say you, you use both words, good and fun. And then when they lost their first two games, you got a lot of sarcastic questions from us. Like, guys, are, are the Chicago Fire good? Guys, are the Chicago Fire good? So, <laughs> Yeah, that aged very well for you and, and not great for us. Yeah, I should have tweeted it and not just kept it in the group <laughs> chat because that doesn't give me the full credit that I could have had from this prediction. But the fire right now under Rafael Vicky are playing some of the best soccer. And this this I do feel confident in saying they're playing some of the best, most aesthetically pleasing soccer in MLS. They're playing out of a 4-2-3-1 with both of their wingers as essentially central players. In this game against Atlanta in that 2 nothing win, it was Georgie Mihailovic on the right and Aliseda on the left. Mihailovic, we know and listeners likely know from seeing him in, in January camp with the U.S., what was that, 2019 at this point? Seeing him with the United States and seeing him with the fire in the past, Mihailovic predominantly and has come up as a central midfielder. Aliseda, for Rafael Vicky, has started out his Chicago Fire career as a second forward or as a, almost a number 10 under Barich. Both of those guys are playing wide, in addition to Gaston Jimenez and to Alvaro Madron as the two midfielders in that double pivot and then Fabian Herbers as the number 10. If you add those guys up, that's three already central midfielders in the 4-2-3-1 in the center of the field. Then you add in Aliseda and Mihailovic, and Chicago have five center midfielders. They're pretty much doing a Barcelona, or doing a Spain, <laughs> circa 2009-2010, in Chicago. No, Chicago cannot win the World Cup, but they're playing almost <laughs> like that, just chalking up and adding in a number nine on the top of that structure. The Fire are overwhelming teams with their central midfielders, and they overwhelmed Atlanta with their glut of attacking and midfield talent in this game. Yeah, my, my only point I'd raise on that is with Aliceta is that he was a winger in Argentina. Like it, The surprise Fair. was that his first couple games with Chicago, he was playing underneath the striker rather than the other way around, but obviously spot on with Mihailovic. And yeah, like again, going back to average positioning, the two wingers are tucked so far inside that like again, they're playing more like central attacking midfielders than they are wingers. And, and as you said, the overloads are what is kind of helping them win games and create chances. And Robert Barrage is le just a legit good forward. Look that the same way that Nemanja Nikolic was when he first got here. So that is super important because um, as, as a few other teams have seen, you know, not that it doesn't matter, but like if you don't have somebody that's consistently putting away chances then you can play well all you want, you're going to get one or no points. So yeah, Chicago are definitely playing well and particularly for it to happen. I don't want to say this early in Rafael Vicky's uh, time because you know, they haven't played a ton of games like nobody else, but like everybody else rather, but they've also been able to, you know, do stuff in the video, the virtual video room during the pandemic and stuff. So the tactics should be starting to iron out, but I'm, I'm very curious to see if they look like this now, is this part of the development or is this, you know, 
plateau because because we've seen some false starts, particularly from this team. But, but I do believe that Vicky has been a good coach, and and some of these signings they they really hit on. Like I, everybody, I, I think knew that Barrett and Jimenez, for the most part, you know, high high floor. That these were veteran guys. These are good, going to be good players. But you know, Alcide has been good. Mihailovic playing wide has helped. Madron, I didn't know what to expect from him, but he's been very good. Uh, Pineda has been awesome. He's a candidate for Rookie of the Year. So we're just going to have to see kind of how this continues next year and and how instead of having this big old like expansion like offseason where they're making 15 to 17 additions or whatever it was like it's going to be one or two guys to accentuate the you know new core that they found and hope is a good thing trajectory is a good thing and and they are trending in the right direction and as long while expectations are low right now you just enjoy the results that they're getting if you're a fire fan i'm gonna gush about the chicago fires double pivot for just a second (laughs) tom with Alvaro Madron and with Gaston Jimenez. Those two guys are the de facto central midfielders in this shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other guys are coming inside, but those two players spend the most time at the base of midfield, and I think they complement each other so well. The first goal in this game, it's Herber's goal that comes from Gaston Jimenez winning the ball in midfield, and that's at the surface level, exactly what Gaston Jimenez is. He's this strong, he is the meat truck in central midfield, right? <laughs> He's the guy who's going to run over you and run through you to get the ball and play it forward. But then you unpeel one more layer of his game and you come and you see this guy who can break lines with his passing, so who can throw ball. off so defenders, good. right? He's, he's filthy good with the ball. He can switch the ball. He can switch the point of attack. He can break lines. He can move defenders with his eyes and then play the ball through traffic. I mean, Jordan talked about it a couple of shows ago against the Revs. Gaston Jimenez pinged a ball into the box right onto a player's chest that resulted in a great attacking chance. Jimenez is almost a complete guy as half of the double pivot. And then Madron, Tom, you talked about him a guy that maybe we didn't know exactly what we were getting coming into the league. He is the silky smooth, mm-hmm. classic Spanish central midfielder. He is like, he's like a budget, you know, any one of those top tier Spanish <laughs> midfielders from that era that I already talked about for Spain. He's a guy who can get on the ball, get out of pressure, move possession forward on the fire. Second goal. This is Berich's goal. It comes from Mihailovic finding Berich inside and slipping him right behind the back line in the box. But before Mihailovic gets the ball, that pass comes from Madron. It's Madron mm-hmm. to Mihailovic to Berich. Those two central midfielders, Jimenez and Madron, are so effective as a double pivot and they complement each other so well, working off one another, stepping and dropping, moving and rotating into different spaces. I think those are the two guys that Rafael Vicky is building this team around, building his tactics around, and it's working right now. So thank you for letting me stand on my soapbox, Tom. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm, I'm always here for that. One more topic before I let you go, Tom. You've been very generous with your time. That's Moses Nyman. D.C. United 16-year-old midfielder getting his first MLS start for D.C. United in their 2-0 loss to the Revolution. He's 16, as I just said, and yet because he's been the top guy in D.C.'s youth setup for a long while now, it feels like this first it feels like this first start has been a long time coming, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and particularly given that D.C. United have had so many injuries and so many um yeah, so many energy suspensions, whatever it is that like he it's it's almost surprising, as you say, that he hasn't started yet. But you have to remind yourself, this is a 16 year old child. This is a boy like the fact that like our like expectations are a little bit elevated, because like you said, we a lot of people have known about him for a while. I wanted to do a quick scouting report to end today's show to give listeners and to give D.C. United fans something to be hopeful about, because we broke down. Jordan and I broke down last week. The the situation with D.C., we'll put it that way. And I talked about it with Taylor Rockwell of the Total Soccer Show midway through last week. So a point of positivity for D.C. United. Moses Nyman is a five foot five central midfielder. Let me let that sink in for just a second. Five foot five playing in the central midfield of a professional soccer team. And he's for being such a small guy. 
He packs a punch. He can hit guys in midfield who are five, six, seven inches taller than he is and come out with the ball. When I watch Moses Nyman and when I watched him against the Revs, that's thing number one that stood out to me. Number two, he's right-footed. And it looks like to me like he plays and defaults to playing on the half turn, which is just pretty much a fancy way of saying that when he's receiving the ball, he'll open up his hips, he'll let the ball roll through so that then he can either dribble forward quickly or move forward quickly. He's always playing on the front foot. And then finally, Moses Nyman sees space well and then actually moves into that space. There's a sequence in the 16th minute against the Revs where DC are being pressed a little bit in their own half. Nyman points to space off the ball. He moves behind the Revs pressing midfield and moves into that little pocket that he pointed to, gets on the ball and breaks DC out of pressure. Those three building blocks, his aggressiveness in midfield, his right-footedness and ability to play forward on the half turn, and his perception of space and his willingness to move and exploit that space, those three things make him an effective, exciting prospect, even though he didn't have necessarily the best, most productive game against the Revolution. All of those things that I just talked about should be encouraging signs for him and for DC United going forward. Absolutely. And I don't, I don't really have anything to add there because I think that you hit it perfectly. And, and uh, another addition for the context here is that it's playing in a DC United team that has been struggling mightily um, this season, particularly with doing things in possession and attacking because of all the players that they're missing and, and whatever else you want to pin it on. So the fact that you can see some of those, you know, promising um, attributes is, is even more important in that he's able to shine through that because it's, it's not like he's walking into, you know, it's not a kid get that's getting his debut for Bayern against Paderborn. You know, it's, it's, it's a team that's going to be defending most of the time and he's still able to do a little bit of his possession and attacking qualities or at least front footed qualities is very important. Tom, you've let me go off. You've let me talk about a number of different tactical things. Is there anything from Major League Soccer that you want to plug that you want to mention right now about what you've seen from around the league before we get out of here? No, I mean, just something random that's been kind of kicking around in my head um, is just Andres Ricarte is so good. And I was talking to somebody at Dallas up when they signed Ricarte. So I was like, yo, like, what, what do I, um, like, how, how good is he? Like, and one of the questions was, does this mean that, you know, Pomacol Ferrer are about to go? And it was like, no, 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 this is just another good player. And he's different than those players. I was like, well, how many different options do you need in a team that already has too many options? And then he played it. It was like, trust me, he's a good player. Like, you're going to, I think you're going to like him and, and all this. And I was like, all right, whatever. And then I saw him play. I was like, oh my God, this guy's like really good. And then I was talking to a scout who's like, yeah, this guy's like all-star slash like best XI quality. Like, this isn't just like going to be a good average, good slightly above average player in MLS. And I was like talking back to the same person at Dallas. I was like, and it was just a really bad way of me doing journalism or reporting or asking questions. I was just pretty much just like, uh, how, how, why, <laughs> how, how did he not leave Colombia before he, he turned 28? Why wasn't he in Argentina or Brazil or Mexico or America or somewhere lower in Europe? I was like, how, why? And they just kind of like laughed and was like, yeah, I mean, Hey, we're happy he's here. Like, but apparently that, his club were a little difficult when it came to letting them go with interest. You know, like Boca was interested, apparently. And this is all secondhand information I was getting, but apparently Boca was a couple Brazilian clubs, um, uh, a Mexican team or two. But, you know, the, the asking price was always too big slash because he, he grew into being their club captain. At some points, it was just like, look, not for sale no matter what the price is. So, look, the, the pandemic helped making him uh, available for Dallas. And again, I was just, I felt betrayed that I didn't know how good he was going to be. And it was just like a pleasant surprise. So it's I just, just a random thought that rolls around in, in, in my head. He's fun. And Dallas had yeah. been missing that connector piece. Yeah. Ferreira is not that guy. He's still 
he's still trying to figure out what he is, I think, on the field. Pomacal, I mean, when he's healthy, still isn't really that guy. He's better. I think I think he's better a little bit deeper on the field with space to stride forward. Ricarte is a guy who can get on the ball and connect the midfield with the attack and move between the lines or drop deeper when he needs to get on the ball and set the tempo in possession. Ricarte is that connective piece that they've been missing in Dallas that Luchi Gonzalez has been missing. Now they have that. And yeah, they draw 0-0 with, with Orlando this week. But they're looking like a team that's much more cohesive when they have the ball. So I appreciate you bringing that up and, and bringing in some of the backstory about Ricarte and his move to Dallas. So thank you, Tom. Yeah, no, thank you for letting me just let uh, a random thought that had a non-secret to anything we've been talking about. And as you said, as we're talking about how, how great he is, that they drew nil-nil. So, you know, it's just, I, I appreciate you giving me that platform. It's what we do. Tom, thank you for joining me. Where can listeners find you on Twitter? Where can they read your work? Take a sec, plug yourself. Twitter at Tom Bogert, um, and then just MLSsoccer.com. And I'm sure you'll find my name there often enough if you, if you check it regularly. You're the man. Tom, thank you for joining me. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we'll be back again next week.